Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Why can't I eat ice cream for breakfast? Why do you, why do you go to work every single day? Why can't I watch this movie? Why do I have to eat my vegetables? Why can't I play on your phone? Why are you locked in the bathroom? Perhaps you're at home right now wondering, why is this guy filling in for John right now? I apologize to you parents who are at home right now, and I've just triggered you. Perhaps there's a little bit of twitching happening and the blankets are being pulled up over your head. You're hiding. Forgive me for that. But as parents, we hear lots and lots of questions like those. And at times it seems the well from which those questions come seems to never run dry. But the truth is, I love questions. I love questions. I love the discovery that's available to us when we ask questions and honestly seek for answers. Should I switch? Just stretch it out. All right. I'm new up here, you know. I'm not always up here with this mic, so forgive me and give me just a second to get used to it. But I do love asking questions. I do love seeking the answers for those questions because, again, we come to new knowledge as we do that. We discover things that we didn't know before as we ask questions. And during my time in seminary, it's one of those lessons that I learned that really stuck with me. And it's of all the things that I learned, and you learn a lot of things, of course, but it stuck with me. And and I still use it to this very day as I read the Bible. I can recall the day that uh, this professor proposed this idea. He said, I'm going to send you home with an assignment. That assignment is to take this one verse. And he provided the verse. And he said, I want to take you take home this one verse, and I want you to ask as many questions as possible from this verse. Now I thought, this is a silly assignment. Give me the verse, give me about five seconds, and I'll give you my five or six questions that I can come up with. I mean, after that, how many questions could you really come up with from a single verse? But then he dropped a little teaser for us, a little challenge. He said, the most that I've ever received from this assignment neared triple digits. Right. So that's what I thought. (laughs) Somebody here just said, what? And that's the sort of response that I had. Like, that is crazy. How could you come up with near 100 questions from a single verse? And then I thought a little bit more about it when I went home. Perhaps I'm just not digging deep enough into the riches that are there. I didn't come up with 100 questions, that's for sure. But had you told me that I would come up with 30-some-odd questions from that assignment, I would have thought at the moment, you're crazy. You're crazy. And so as we approach today's text, it's that inquisitive spirit that I hope that we approach the text with. The one that comes so naturally to us when we're children, question after question. That's what I want from us today, is to question the text, to really dig in. And I trust that as we do, that God will honor our honest intentions. He will honor those intentions, and he will help us to understand the text at a deeper level, and he'll provide the answers in his perfect time. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it with me now to the book of Acts. And as Pastor John indicated, we'll be in the first chapter, verses 1 through 11. And uh, as you find your way there, John is going to be preaching out of the book of Acts in the upcoming weeks. And so hopefully 
as we engage with that first chapter this morning, it'll sort of whet our appetites to what's to come. Acts chapter 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken away from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. This is God's word. The book of Acts is really part two of Luke's larger work. Luke writes the gospel that's given his name, and along with that, he writes the book of Acts. And when you add them together, Luke actually becomes the most prolific writer in the New Testament. He writes more than any other writer of the New Testament. And as we try to get a framework to, to think about these two things, we could think of Luke's gospel as the work that Jesus began to do, and Acts as the work that Jesus continues to do. And Luke by, um, by trade, is a physician, but it turns out he's a pretty good historian, too. So when we read the gospel, we read Acts, we see the details and proofs that are important to him. Luke is out to prove something. He makes that clear in the gospel, right, as the, right at the beginning in the first chapter. He wants to prove something to us. He provides evidence. And as we open up this first chapter and look at these first two verses, he wants to remind us of the proof that he provided. And so that's where my first question comes today. As we approach the text with this inquisitive nature, a, a time of questioning, I ask the question, what was proven? What did Luke prove? And so if we just simply go back to those first two verses that I just read, Luke says, I wrote this first narrative, Theophilus. He wrote the gospel about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. First proof from Luke. Luke says, in my gospel, I prove that Jesus gave instructions to the Holy Spirit. Now that through the Holy Spirit turns out to be a pretty important part, especially for the book of Acts. The third person of the Trinity becomes a critical player throughout all of Acts. We call it sometimes the acts of the Holy Spirit, because he's such a large player in what happens throughout this work. And so he says, 
it is through the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave instructions. And again, that makes sense because we've been told other places that what are the roles of the Holy Spirit? Well, one of those roles is that he is a teacher. He is an instructor. And so Jesus tells us, and Luke provides the proof, that Jesus was an instructor through the Holy Spirit. The second proof here is in verse 3. Luke says, Jesus suffered. Now we know that Luke could go a lot further than just saying that Jesus suffered. And of course he does in his gospel. So when he says that he suffered, we certainly know that, but we also know that he did much more than suffer, right? Jesus died for us. This is of utmost importance. Jesus didn't just take a beating. He wasn't just humiliated. He didn't just endure endure rejection and humiliation from friends and family. All of that, of course, is true. But Jesus actually died. He died for our sins. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. And if you're watching at home, I trust some of you are saying, thank you, Jesus. And indeed, we should say it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for paying for our sins. Luke goes on in verse 3 and gives another proof. So proof number three. Jesus presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. I love that part, right? I love the part where Luke just says many convincing proofs, right? It wasn't just like, hey, I heard a rumor, something happened over here, I heard from a friend from a friend. He provided many convincing proofs. He says over a period of 40 days, Jesus shows up in physical, tangible form. When Mary sees Jesus in the garden, what does she do? Clings to him. She doesn't want to let go of him. He is a physical being. When he shows up for the disciples, what happens? They touch the wounds in his hands, the wound in his side. They know that he is real. This is no ghost. He sits and eats with them. Many convincing proofs over and over again over a period of 40 days. And he teaches them. He continues to teach them them about the kingdom of God. So I'm pointing out this morning three proofs from these verses. And I want to summarize them for us so that we can see them in order. First, Jesus taught the way of salvation. Second, Jesus suffered and died for our sins. And third, Jesus was raised from the dead. It's the gospel, right? It's the gospel right at the beginning of the book of Acts. Here's the very message at the very heart of this church. Pastor John said it a week or two ago, right? Our message is Jesus. And it's our message because it's God's message. It's like Luke just needs to do a quick recap in these first couple verses, right? You see it. You turn on your Netflix and you start your show and you're like, here's what happened last week. Or 10 seconds ago when you're binging, here's what happened 10 seconds ago in case you needed a reminder, right? That's what Luke does in these first couple verses. Remember what I showed you. Now listen, I told you at the beginning, Luke, the gospel, is long and there's lots of details. What does he want to recap for us? The gospel message. Jesus lived and taught the way of salvation. Jesus died for our sins, and Jesus was raised from the dead. That's what he wants to recap. All the other things, go back and read them. Here's what I need you to know as we move forward now and what Jesus continues to do. It's the gospel. As I said before, we could say that Luke's gospel is what Jesus began to do, and now Acts is what Jesus continues to do. And as we move into the next 
few verses, we see that it, how it sort of unfolds and begins to take shape. Verse 4, let's take a look at it again. He says that while Jesus was with them, he told them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Father's promise. Wait for the Father's promise. Now, immediately, my mind says, what promise? What, what was promised? That's, that's another question I have for the text today. What was promised? Well, Jesus immediately tells them what was promised. He says, remember, I told you about this. It's the Holy Spirit. And in a few days, he's coming. What does that mean exactly? How will the Holy Spirit come? What will the Holy Spirit do? How will we know that the Holy Spirit is here? I don't know if that's any of the questions that the disciples were asking in that moment. But what I do know, what is clear, is the disciples still didn't quite get it. They didn't quite get it. They seem to be thinking that now that Jesus is back with them, that he has conquered sin and death, that now we can conquer Rome too. And so they ask him, when exactly are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, Nanya. That's what my kids say to me sometimes when I ask them questions. Unfortunately, I taught them that, right? Nanya, Nanya business. Jesus doesn't say it that way, of course. <clears throat> he doesn't say it that way, but he does say, that's not what is important to you right now. What is important is this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that the disciples thought, we've got the ultimate power. We've got the ultimate power. And so the logical use of that power, vanquish our enemies. Restore the kingdom to Israel. But Jesus says, I promise you the Holy Spirit, in a few days you will receive him. And when you do, you will have a different kind of power. A power that you could have never imagined. Listen to this. In the next chapter, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit shows up as promised. All these people groups from all these different tribes and nations and tongues, they're all together, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. And he enables them to speak in languages that they normally could not speak so that they can communicate the gospel and receive the gospel of Jesus. It's the reverse of what God did to the people at Babel, right? He's reversed it. So the brokenness that existed at Babel, when people decided, I'm rejecting God's plan, I'm going to set up camp, build this tower, make a big name for myself, and God says, no, right? Now I'm going to disperse you. Now you won't be able to communicate with one another, and they all are dispersed, right? God says, I'm reversing that now. I'm bringing these people back to me. I'm bringing them back, uniting them to me. It's a reversal of that curse, right? But it doesn't stop here. The power of the the Holy Spirit is so different than what the disciples were thinking about. The disciples were thinking, let's get rid of our enemy. Kind of like the way Samson was thinking about how he would deal with his new restored strength. You remember the story of Samson, right? Superhuman strength, super long hair, and that's where the strength came from. But when he gave up his secret, the hair was cut. The power was taken. His enemies bound him, gouged his eyes out so that he could no longer see. But his hair began to grow back. And his strength began to restore. And so what did he do with that power? You guys remember? He crushed his enemies. He caused a building to collapse upon 
thousand Philistines. That's how he utilized his power. That's how he utilized the uh, the power, and that's sort of the power and the way that the disciples are thinking. That's how we should utilize this new power. But when the Holy Spirit shows up and he reverses the curse of Babel, instead of crushing the life out of the enemies of God, he breathes life into them. Take a guess how many people were saved that first day when the Holy Spirit showed up? 3,000. How many did did Samson crush? 3,000. The Holy Spirit breathes life. It's It's a total reversal of what we were expecting and understanding. And so it's like God is using Luke to say, if you're not sure what this new way of being is like, let me try to make it clear. Remember Babel? Remember Samson? A total reversal. Isn't that interesting? This is what was promised, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would bring the power to reverse the brokenness of the past and give life to those who are dead. Finally, I get to my last question from our text today. What was provided? I asked what was proven. I asked what was promised. And now the third question, what was provided? In verse 8, Jesus provides them with the plan. He tells them that when the Holy Spirit comes and when you receive his power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He provides the plan. You will receive power and you will use that power to take my gospel to the ends of the earth, to offer it to all who are lost. This is not a cultural gospel. It's not a national gospel. It's not a political gospel. This is a gospel for all people everywhere. And then as promised, Jesus leaves them to wait. What an incredible opening to an incredible book that I hope you'll keep on reading over the next days and weeks and asking the questions that, uh, uh, asking that those questions, being inquisitive and asking more questions as you go through it. But as we end our time here together, I want to stop asking questions of the text. And I want to ask just two more questions, but I want to direct them towards us. The first one comes from the first question that I actually asked from the text. That question was, what was proven? And we concluded, I summarized it if you remember, Jesus taught the way of salvation, Jesus suffered and died for our sins, Jesus was raised from the dead. So my question for us, do we believe it? When the Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches a sermon and he says these same things to those who are listening. That Jesus did these things so that we could be rescued from eternal death. And that if you believe that all you need to do is repent from your life of sin and put your faith in the work that Jesus has done for you. I can't think of a good reason why if you've never done that, you don't do it right this second. Why wait? Let's pray. Father, I pray for those right now who your spirit has descended upon, filled their hearts. And I ask God that you would help them. It's not an easy decision. It's not an easy decision. We have to surrender to you. But you've done all the work. 
to soften our hearts right now. Help those who need you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Got one more question. One more question. One last question. It comes in verse 8. Jesus says something very specific. He says that when the Holy Spirit comes and you receive his power, you will be my witnesses. He doesn't say, I hope you all consider being my witnesses. He doesn't say, you know what? You might be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes. He says, you will be my witnesses. And that's the truth, isn't it? It's the truth. No matter where we are, Jesus bumper sticker on our car or not, that little bracelet on our wrist or not, the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the t-shirt that we might wear professing or not, you are Jesus's witnesses. And so here's my question. What kind of witness are we going to be? Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. Download our app by searching New City HH in your app store. We'll see you next week.